to see you. I'm liking this energy in the room. My name is Michelle Manley. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm pastor of spiritual formation here at the river, and uh, I'll add my warm welcome alongside of Brad's. I am glad to be with you this morning and to welcome you to the fourth Sunday in our Lenten journey this year. Um, the period of Lent in the life of the church is roughly the 40 days that precede our great celebration of Easter. This is the time where we go uh, slowly, we're invited to go slowly with Jesus in the story of his life as he approaches his death on the cross and to let that story um, shape us. It's also traditionally a time in the life of the church where we engage the spiritual practice of fasting as part of how we move with Jesus into this season. So as a church, we've been doing um, a series of fasts, and right now in the middle of Lent, we have invited uh, you all to consider doing a media fast of some kind in your life in recognition that media permeates our attention, and it might be worth shutting that or dialing that back um, a bit for a while to see what it um, helps us to notice, what it does in us, one of the things that we really um, appreciate in the life of our church is the telling of stories to help us enter into what God's doing in our midst. So I am grateful to be joined this morning by Rachel Gottlieb, one of the wonderful members of our young adult small group on Wednesday night. Rachel has agreed to share a bit about what she's been experiencing in the media fast. So um, why don't we start, could you just tell us, how did you shape your media fast? What does a media fast look like for you this Lent? Yeah, so um, I originally thought about my fasting idea um, as I was doing my work. So um, I work as a doctor, and I often give people tips about sleep. And one of the things is that you're not supposed to be on screens for like a good hour before bed. And I was like, oh, I don't do that. Um, <laughs> I should try to do better too. Um, and so thinking about um, what I would do throughout all of Lent, I decided that for the last, for at least 30 minutes each day, I would put down all screens and just um, do anything that didn't require screens. So um, often that time was filled with doing the Lenten devotional, but also just reading having time to draw if I wanted to draw, um, just sitting with my cat, you know, the simple things mm -hmm. and like reconnecting that way. Yeah. Um, and then for these, these last two or this, this portion of the fast, I also added on um, basically deleting Twitter and Instagram from my phone. Uh, so I'm just going without for this time. <laughs> did, did you hear the... Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. Can you tell us what that, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about what the 30 minutes has, has um, allowed you to do. Yeah. What, what are you noticing? I know it's only been a week, but what are you noticing in being without those um, social media platforms? What's it, what's it doing in you, for you? Yeah. So I think it's helped me be more present mm -hmm. um, because honestly, when I'm, on Twitter, on Instagram, it's kind of my activity to scroll through things while I'm waiting or if like I'm bored but I don't have a very good idea of what activity I should do, I'll just kind of scroll, scroll, scroll. Yeah. And it produces a lot of anxiety for me mm. um, because a lot of it is news that's not so great 
or other people being stressed about their work or things that they're involved in. Yeah. And being able to substitute that out has allowed me to be kind of present in yeah. my own body mm -hmm. and not kind of up in the clouds mm -hmm. thinking about all of the things going on all over, mm -hmm. but actually being present and grounded yeah. and having space to um, explore my time with God more yeah. and to be creative and experiment and curious, which is something that I'm not used to having time for doing because yeah. I just, I get so whirled up in busyness, I don't realize the pockets that I have yeah. to reground and be present. Yeah, thank you. I, he I hear the theme of sort of reclaiming and the way that that's opening up spaces that are life-giving. Yeah. You may have already spoken to this, but maybe this is the last question I would ask is, what is your hope? Like why, I mean, you, you mentioned the first tier of like, oh, wow. I tell my patients, so I should do it too. But why, why are you doing this? Like what, what is your hope as you engage some media fasting this Lent? Yeah, so I think for me, my hope is that I'll just have this carved out time where I can be curious, where I can experiment. And I'm realizing that some of the ways that I've been taught to connect with God, to talk to God, to pray with God, maybe aren't the most effective for me mm. and the way that I speak with God. And so this is a time where I can kind of experiment and try different things and uh, tap into different um, contemplative practices. Mm through this carved out time. Yeah. So that's the hope. That's a Nothing. great hope. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, you. Rachel, for sharing some of your experience with us. Yeah. So um, like I mentioned and Rachel mentioned, we are in the middle of our two weeks of focusing on fasting from media. So if you're in a groove, stick with it. Um, if you feel like, oh, it's been kind of up and down, an opportunity to recommit, or if you hadn't joined in, there's still a week ahead. So encourage you to consider how you might um, make space in your life by shutting off media and see how it is that God meets you in that. You know, fasting, broadly speaking, does a variety of things for us and in us. But I would say most centrally, uh, the opportunity in fasting is to be aware of where our attention and our energies flow, I would say almost reflexively, without our thinking about it. So earlier, when we had the challenge as a, as a church to fast in a, uh, towards simple eating, I eliminated um, a number of my uh, regular eating things um, from my diet, and I became keenly aware, uh, not for the first time, how at about 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, my attention runs strongly in the direction of ice cream. Uh, my habits have formed in my mind and in my body and maybe in my inner child an expectation that no matter what the day has held, it will end with a treat, best if it's a bowl of ice cream. And I think that's important to notice. It may be, and often is, I think, in my life, um, innocuous. It's a, it's, a, it's a simple pleasure. Uh, I can even connect it sometimes to the sweetness of God. Um, but it's important also to notice what kind of energy is in my expectation for that treat. And am I putting a disproportionate amount of my hope, as odd as it may sound, 
on that bowl of ice cream? Where is my hope running? Am I putting far more weight on what ice cream can do for me uh, than uh, it's, it's possible? Um, now, I am aware that over, over my years, I have at times been accused of taking things maybe just a little seriously. So if some of you are thinking, come on, Michelle, ice cream, really? I hear you. I do hear you. <laughs> and I think our daily habits are one of the greatest indicators of where our attention runs. So for you, it may not be ice cream. Maybe you enjoy a glass of wine at the end of the day. Maybe your um, attention runs to some kind of um, shopping or entertainment. Maybe even like a research habit, you know, to get all the information you can. Again, potentially all fine activities, but important to notice what the energy is there. How much am I putting on these practices in my daily life? Because that's what I want to invite us to um, muse on today, where is your attention? Where is your attention? And with it, quite possibly, your hope. Because as Jesus moved closer and closer to the end of his earthly ministry and life, we see that he was concerned about his disciples, his closest band of friends and followers. Where was their attention going? He knew that the days were going to get tough very soon. He was about to be killed. The pressure was going to go up on those who were closest to him. Unfathomable betrayal and denial were on the horizon. So Jesus emphasized in his final words to his disciples what they were going to need to survive and to thrive when the heat of life got turned up. So there's an extended teaching in the last chapters of uh, the Gospel of John where Jesus is delivering these words uh, to his disciples and, and then on to us about what it will take to be people who flourish in life. And among them is a, what I would consider one of Jesus' actually more straightforward word pictures that I want us to take a look at together this morning. So we're in um, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, starting in the first verse. These are Jesus' words to his disciples and through them to us. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, you are already clean, and that word clean has the same root as the word for prune. You are already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So, I named this as what I consider one of Jesus' more straightforward teachings, but I, I should say um, what is probably obvious, we no longer live in an agricultural community here in Silicon Valley, though I do know we have a lot of backyard gardeners out there. Nonetheless, gardener or not, I think you probably have a pretty clear idea of what Jesus is painting here. 
um, and it's depicted in the picture that's going to come up on the screen. The vine is this thick, uh, almost trunk-like piece of the plant. And it's the vine that anchors the many branches that can grow off of it. That's the vine's purpose. It anchors the branches, and it also is the delivery mechanism for the life-giving water and nutrients from the soil so that those branches can produce fruit aplenty, <laughs> right? Lush um, fruit, as you see here in the picture. This quality of organic connection and the, the flow of vitality is Jesus' secret to a flourishing life. Jesus says, I'll be the vine. I will anchor and nurture you all, my followers, the branches. The father shows up as the gardener, the one who is um, apparently into the best fruit possible. So the gardener prunes, which is really uh, an activity that concentrates life instead of it dissipating over a variety of, of directions. And then our part is to remain in the vine, to stay connected. So Jesus is laying out everyone's roles. And we'll pick it up again in verse 5. Jesus goes on. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Feels like Jesus is getting a little repetitive here. I take from that the strength of Jesus' desire that his disciples really get uh, the crux of the matter here. And most specifically, what is the crux of the matter for the disciples? I mean, put on your best Bible study hat. What word is repeated in these verses a lot? Remain, right? Remain, remain, remain. I counted 11 remains in the 10 verses we've read this morning. So sometimes this, um, the original word here is translated abide. So you might be familiar uh, with it that way in this passage. But the, either way, the, the central message is clear, right? Stay put. Stay put. Don't move. Don't disconnect. Dwell. Reside. Belong in the vine. This is what it all boils down to for Jesus in this high-stakes moment with the disciples. As everything is about to turn and the heat is about to go up, Jesus says the most important thing them is that they remain in the vine. Now, I think these verses in John 15 um, are generally among the more familiar verses in scripture if you've been a Christian for a while. I'm not exactly sure why that's true. Maybe it's because the imagery is vivid and is relatively understandable, and it is kind of lovely, like the picture uh, that we put on the screen. 
I think in that familiarity and loveliness, I was kind of struck as I was looking at this passage um, with as fresh an eye as I could this week, that most often remain is actually given as a command. Did you notice that? Jesus is commanding the disciples to remain in him, to remain in the vine. I wonder um, what you think about that. (laughs) Because my feeling, I'm not sure if this is exactly the right way to put it, but is that commands are sort of passe these days (laughs) in our context, right? Sometimes for good reason. On the one hand, they can seem a little silly. On the other hand, they can seem abusive and, and be abusive. Maybe you imagine uh, a parent getting to that boiling point of frustration. Eat your vegetables! Get your shoes on! Now, if you've been there, you understand why that flows so naturally. I do. Um, but when you step back, you, you do feel like, okay, this is a little overdone. On the other side is an image, um, potentially from your experience, of a power-hungry superior barking out orders with no regard for the damage that's doing to those who serve under them. But I want to draw our attention to the fact that there is also a command that saves lives. Because that was lost for me among those two primary images. I mean, those of you who um, have worked in a hospital setting know what I'm talking about. You know, in a true emergency moment in the hospital ER, it is the senior doctor's job to call out commands that need to be fulfilled. Stat, life and death could be on the line. Jesus' interaction with the disciples here and our distance from it as we read it may not feel to us like it has that kind of immediacy of an ER moment. But as we've been trying to kind of get in our senses, Jesus is carrying an increasingly urgent concern for the disciples. I mean, they, they could be facing their deaths. So the stakes are actually high, very high here. And Jesus says, if you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That is the hope. That is the promise that Jesus holds out. And then he goes on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Without the life that flows from the vine, there is no sustained life. A branch without the life-giving nutrients and water of the vine dies. It has lost its purpose. It is just wood for the fire. The stakes are vitality or loss of purpose. Being vibrantly alive or being hollowed out, dried up. You know, one of the things that I most appreciate about our community here at the river is the the freedom and the respect that we give to each one of our spiritual journeys. 
in a recognition that every story is unique. There is no um, same timing and pace for all of the, our unfolding spiritual journeys. And so we make room for us to travel at our pace. Sometimes people describe life at the river as a spacious place. And I love that. I, I have a sense of pleasure and pride in that. And I want to say with um, some straightforwardness and some care that I wonder sometimes, in the midst of the gift of this spacious place, if we lose track of some of the urgency of the spiritual life. Not an anxious urgency. No one needs an anxious burden. But Jesus says there's an urgency to our connection to God that should be paid attention to. And I am concerned that among us, for a whole variety of reasons, there may be too many of us who have gone for too long on empty or in neutral in our lives with God. We've lost our sense of urgency. Jesus says it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough when the heat of life goes up. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I've actually always found that one of the more strange things that Jesus said. Because <laughs> I think if you're like me, you're sitting there thinking, I do all kinds of things outside of vital connection with God. And you do. I do. But I think what Jesus is saying is that we are not able to bear the kind of fruit that our souls most need apart from the vine that is Jesus the kind of lasting peace and joy, the deep love and connection with others, that's not possible without remaining in the vine that is Jesus. Some of you might be aware um, that there's been sort of a startling move of God in a place called Asbury College in Kentucky this winter. Some are calling it revival. And depending on your history and your personality, that may cause you to lean right in and, and want to know more with excitement. I'm aware that it may cause some of us to kind of lean back and wonder, are we getting carried away? I can just tell you what I understand of the facts of the situation, that there was a chapel service on this um, Christian college campus on Wednesday, February 8th. It was uh, just your normal chapel service, um, and my understanding is that students at this Christian college are required to be in chapel three times a week, so maybe some are there with fullness of heart, but it also is a box to be checked. I read that the, the message that morning was not especially rousing, um, but this is what Christianity Today wrote about what happened at the end of that chapel service on February 8th. After the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing a final chorus. And then something began to happen that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense 
of transcendence. Such a big word of being in the presence of God. And they did not want to go. They stayed and continued to worship. They stayed and continued to worship for 15 days. Groups of students from Asbury and many others who wanted to um, be witness to and be part of what continued to unfold stayed in worship and prayer in that chapel 24-7 for 15 days. 15 days, that's more than two weeks. Until such time that those who were leading um, decided that they had been faithful to what God had invited them to. And I like this part. They also decided that there are other things in life to be attended to. We need to get back to regular sleep, to the studies that we're here for, to doing our laundry. And so after 15 days, they brought the 24-7 prayer and worship to a close. Is it a sign of revival? I guess I can't say. I think revivals are known by their lasting fruit. But I am soft to a comment that I heard on a podcast talking about uh, what was happening at Asbury. The presenter said, in this moment, I guess I'd rather be gullible than cynical. Rather be gullible than cynical. And this is why I'm willing to risk a bit of gullibility on this story. Two reasons that I have read about repeatedly in a number of, of different sources. Two central things I've heard about what went on for those 15 days in Kentucky. First, a spirit of what was described as quiet adoration of Jesus permeated the chapel. Quiet adoration of Jesus. The students were captivated by the goodness, the beauty, the justice, the mercy of Jesus. And their response was to adore. Jesus had their attention. And adoration was their response. And then secondly, and, and as movingly, if not more so for me, you know, the, the majority of the folks in the chapel, at least at the beginning, were 18 to 22-year-olds. They were our Gen Z friends, known as a generation, among many other things, but known for an immensity of, of pressure that they experience and the ways in which that has overflowed into an uptick of mental health crisis. And these young people in that chapel said that they experienced a sense of deep and abiding peace. No wonder they didn't want to leave. See, I wonder if what happened at the core of this experience in Asbury is like a modern-day illustration of the fruit that can only grow when lives remain on the vine. I'm thankful for all the practices that we've become aware of that help us to grow in peace, to taste peace in our life, but a saturating of peace, a peace that actually releases the inner vigilance that so many of us live with, that only comes 
from the life that flows through the vine of Jesus, through remaining in Jesus. And that's what the Asbury students did, quite literally. They stayed. They were captivated by the presence of God, and they did not leave for 15 days. So Jesus' word to his disciples and his word to us is to remain. We need to wrestle with the fact that it comes, at least at times, as a command and that Jesus says the stakes are high. It will require us to employ our will and train our habits to keep God at the center of our attention, the the direction in which um, our hearts are anchored continually. And I think we're going to need the fuel of at least occasional experiences where we find ourselves captivated by the presence of God, where our hearts become overflowing in gratitude and love, in worship, because of what we see about who God is. I'm not sure we can um, experience a lifetime of remaining without experiences of being captivated by God. So, how would we move toward a life captivated by God? It's a gift, and we can position ourselves for it. So first, I would say we begin with confession. We begin with confession that there are other things that captivate us, that we are a people who become captivated by lesser goods than God. This season of Lent, we have been leaning into prayers of confession. Fundamentally, confession is just saying what's true, just saying what's true about us about ways in which our attention has drifted and about our desire to bring our attention back. And so I want to invite you um, again this morning to a few minutes of reflection right here before I I end uh, the message, and we're close. Um, I want to invite us to a few minutes of awareness. Where is it that my attention has wandered? And to the extent that it's true, what is your desire to return? When you came in, I think you received a a small piece of paper. So as your awareness grows, I would encourage you to actually write out your prayer of confession. I was talking with someone after the first service who said, you know, when you write it down, it like helps it get out of you. I said, yeah, that's true. That's one of the reasons we write. So I would encourage you to write your prayer of confession and to leave it with God. So I'm going to sit for two or three minutes and allow you to have that reflective space, and then we'll, we'll continue and finish up. 1 John 1.9 gives us this clear promise. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the exchange that we can count on. When we confess our sin, the forgiveness of God is available for us. 
my prayer is that you would experience that forgiveness. And I invite you, if it's helpful for you to embody the exchange, to make use of the practice that we've often used during Lent, to bring your written confession and leave it in the vase at the cross during worship this morning, knowing that that is done and you walk away in the forgiveness of God. So we move toward a life captivated by God by just admitting that we often are captivated by other things, but we'd like to be captivated by God first and foremost. We also uh, move toward a life captivated by God just by asking God to help us be people who can be captivated. You know, a lot of us, um, I think, have experienced atrophy in that muscle of, of being awake to wonder whether because of uh, an overemphasis on the analytical mind in our schooling, uh, in our workplace, or whether because of the pains of life, some of us don't know a move other than staying behind uh, a door of protection. And so we need to invite God to help us open up to wonder, to open up to being allured by the goodness of God. So I encourage you to ask for help. And then finally, we just we put ourselves in places that invite us to be captivated. And there are a number of places I think that can help us with this, but I want to focus us this morning on the gift of worship. Worship is the fundamental space of being uh, of invitation to be captivated by who God is as we recount together all the things that are most beautiful, most glorious about who God is. And we give our voices and our bodies uh, to joining um, with the saints throughout the ages who sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So I want to invite you to give yourself a fresh to the practice of worship. Do it here today. Do it each time you join us for worship. And do it in other places as well. You know, um, we talked earlier about space being created because of our media fasting. Maybe in the space created because of your media fast, you could turn to worship. Just put on some music and sing. Let your body lead you in adoration of the God who is being um, extolled, praised. And notice, look for God to give you the experience of God's life-flowing nutrients from the vine that is Jesus coming to your experience. That's my prayer for us. So let me pray as the worship team comes to lead us. God, we thank you that you are marvelous. You are beyond description. And when we, when we glimpse it, even for a second, our hearts are moved. And so I pray that you would
do that in our midst. Even this morning, God, would you open us to see you clearly and to allow our worship to overflow in ways that help us keep our attention with you in hope of all that you want to send of your life uh, to us and through us into this world. Lord, that's what we're asking for. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.